You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. So it's an interesting thing. What is it that you find meaningful in life? How do you um, go about your day in such a way that you're spending uh, a certain amount of time each day engaged in activities that are actually meaningful to you? Have you been able to organize your life in such a way that that happens? And then what kind of support do you need in order for you to be able to engage in that way? This is beginning to tell you what kind of relationship that you need uh, in order to support that, what the number of people that you would need to support that and what they would be willing to um, uh, put up with from you. And then you would have to find out from them what they need for their exploration and decide whether or not you want to commit to a relationship where those resources can be used for that. So when you come together in a primary relationship, you're combining resources to support the two of your, your lives together and to support each of your explorations. That's the idea. How does that work? So you need to know from the other people what it is that they find meaningful. In secure uh, attachment, these things are in place already, but in insecure attachments, people's relationship to that is quite different. Dismissing people, and again, I'm using dismissing people as a phrase. I know it means that people who, when they are activated, use a dismissing attachment strategy in response to that attachment activation, but it's a long sentence to have to repeat each time. So I'm just going to shorthand it into dismissing people. People who use a dismissing strategy, they don't share their exploration and they don't think to share their exploration and actually they're inhibited from sharing their exploration because their sensitivity to rejection. And so they want somebody that supports their uh, exploration without them having to uh, share the experience of it. People who use a preoccupied strategy tend to abandon their own exploration in favor of constant proximity to their attachment figure. And so they don't explore really, and they haven't learned how to explore, and they don't know often what's meaningful to them. And so that peace around exploration is, is different from, for them. Secure people and dismissing people know how to explore, but preoccupied people don't, and they have to learn that. And, uh-huh. All of it. What is it that you, how is it that you live your life in such a way that it's meaningful to you? What activities do you engage in that are meaningful to you? And that could be anything. What has meaning? What do you like to do? You don't have to answer. (laughs) If you haven't discovered what what you want to do yet, then you have to begin to look, right? Uh Uh-huh. Explore, but it's, more of a it's often a pseudo exploration. Okay. 
So dismissing people tend to evaluate what has high social value or high resources associated with it, and they tend to go for that. Be so exploring what's meaningful to what they think other people think, rather than what is meaningful to them? No, they want to be able to get their needs met in a non-reciprocal relationship, and so they need the resources that they can trade for it. Right. That's yeah. what they're looking That's for. Yeah. So the idea is, I get a high social value and you value that position and you want to be close to it and I can trade my having the position for you taking care of me in a way that I want without me actually having to reciprocate and take care of you in a way that's meaningful to you. I don't need to understand what you want or what you need um, because you're satisfied by the proximity to the position of power that I have. The battery is running low. I'm just letting people know out there. If it goes off, uh, we'll turn it back on in a minute. Maybe I can use my phone. Well, we'll come to that bridge in a minute. Uh, it, no, it, it's the... Um, I'm just getting messages. The power is on, the adapter is the wrong one. When you think about what, what it is that you need in a relationship, wh what is it that you find? In primary relationships, there's a high association with uh, sexuality in, in that. People often, because the relationships are so resource intensive, include in their thinking about those relationships um, uh, some sexual component, but uh, if you look at the statistics of sexual activity in marriages in our country, you'll see that 60% uh, of marriages are sexless after five years. So it isn't a primary um, motivator for the long-term relationship for most people. And then that really points to the way or how your sexual orientation survived your upbringing. Um, as I say in my gallows humor way, we're all born with a sleek, sexy sports car of a sexual orientation, but by the time we're old enough to drive, it's a beat up old jalopy. <laughs> so, um, Sexual orientation is tied into gender identification as well. They're different, but they're linked. Um, in our binary culture, although there's, there's some pressure now to shift that rigid binary piece, um, it's mostly still there. You're, we have heterosexuals, we have homosexuals. There is a legitimate category called bisexual, but in our current culture, bisexuals are just people who haven't faced up to their homosexuality yet. This isn't actually true. Um, in, in you know empirical lab tests, peop some people are aroused in, in both uh, uh, areas. Most people are heterosexual. A small, people, a small percentage of the population is only homosexual, and then there's a, a larger group that's bisexual.
what is it that you um, want in terms of that in, in a relationship and are you able to negotiate it? A lot of people are very impacted around the experience of uh, their own sexuality. They, they're unwilling to uh, be open maybe even to themselves about what it is that they want. And yet to be in a securely functioning primary relationship, that, that has to be open and on the table. How are you going to do it? So there may be things that you need to do for yourself in order to open yourself up to being able to function in a relationship. Um, we've lost the uh, computer, I think. Sorry the tech is such a problem today. It's 11.04. Um, would this be an, uh, an inopportune time to take a break or shall we continue? What do you think? Okay, fair enough. that that had happened. That would be great. I haven't heard it. No, he's, in, he's interviewed. It's called uh, Shrink Rap Radio. He's a psychology professor at Sonoma, I think. And he had Dan Brown. And about midway through, he mentions him. Yeah, we're working on a study. Um, he, he reported, Dan Brown reported on Oh, nice. Preliminary yeah. It's a podcast called Shrink Rap Radio, and the particular interview is with a man named Dan Brown. I'm going to I'm going to quote Dan Brown. Um, he said to me the other day, uh, you know, the thing that's so interesting about uh, working with the people that you work with is that they're all so fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> made me laugh which which is you know it's interesting because uh, in, the, in, the, in the meditation world and in the, in the meta group world most of the people that come uh, are disorganized 
but most of the people who go to Harvard are not disorganized. <laughs> and so they deal with a very different uh, population. For instance, in the book Attached, if you remember in the beginning it said, there are so few disorganized people, we're not even going to cover it in this book. <laughs> so I would say that the, the, of the people that come to Metagroup, about 70% of them are in the disorganized category. So we, we have a, an unusual uh, population uh, for um, <clears throat> research. Right. Oh, well, I also want to point out security is a really low bar <laughs> down here. I mean, low. Um, people may not function really well, but they are still secure in terms of the attachment dynamic. Um, so, uh, in the research world. 65% of people are secure, 15% are dismissing, 15% are preoccupied, and 5% are disorganized. Is that like the anxious avoidance? Um, so those are child categories, secure, anxious, and, uh, anxious avoidant, anxious ambivalent, and disorganized are the child categories. And then the adult categories, there are five adult categories, uh, secure, dismissing, preoccupied, uh, unresolved with trauma, and a complex disorganization, or CC. You take an AAI, which we do offer at Metagroup if you want to do it. It's resource intensive. <laughs> <laughs> So here we go again. <clears throat> um, sexual um, needs are often expressed in relationships, but you know, a primary A relationship where you are co-mingling everything, including finances, living space, is one thing. Many people have sexual relationships with Bs or Cs or Ds even, or uh, complete strangers. I mean, there's really no limit on that. What is it that you need from, from the other person to feel secure in your base? That's the idea, right? Everything is on the table. Um, one of the things about uh, sexual orientation is that it's quite fixed um, without going into the, uh, you know, in depth about how that happens. But you have your genetic sex, uh, and sometimes that's not clear, intersex people, there's a combination of that. Manifestation in secondary sex characteristics. You have your hormonal sex. So everybody starts as a female zygote. You're aware of that, right? And depending on your chromosomal match, it, it sensitizes you to some hormones and um, desensitizes you to other ones, and your body develops based on that sensitivity. 
all of the brains start female. If you have uh, an XY chromosome and you're, you're male, the femininity of the brain is, is uh, um, changed and then the brain is masculinized. But that can happen in any combination regardless of what your genetic sex is so that you could have a, uh, a native feminine brain that's never defeminized and never masculinized and you could still develop um, a um, conventionally male body or you could be female and that could happen or you could be not feminized, not defeminized and masculinized or you could be female and you could be have a feminine brain and also a brain that's masculinized. You could be in a female body that is defeminized and uh, the brain is masculinized. So we, we talk about this in terms of uh, trans people. Um, you're born and then you have the gender learning that is given to you by your caregivers depending on what they wanted. So either it's conventionally masculine or feminine based on your sex or some uh, arrangement that satisfied them in ignoring what might have been uh, there. Um, you have at a certain point uh, in adolescence uh, a hormonalization into ma mature sexuality and depending on how your body reacts to that and what happens there you could develop the uh, secondary sex characteristics of your sex or of the opposite sex or not develop. And then you have uh, the choice of how to re represent your a sexual and gender identity that comes in the adolescent period. And all of that uh, comes together. Um, the expressions throughout childhood of your natural desires will be met with your caregiver's response and also the response of your peer groups. And uh, that either will have gone well or not so well. And uh, so you'll <laughs> have developed a freedom of expression sexually or you'll be inhibited around it. And all of those things you bring to the relationship with another person and they need to take care of you in a way that's meaningful to you with the way that you are and understand that the, the conditioning around sex is one of those things that, that can get quite rigid and so, or fixed. And so you have that conditioning. Um, and then the question is, if you have a sexual desire or, or sexual arousal in areas that uh, the other person that you pick doesn't want to address, how do you, in the relationship, manage that. So what you'll notice now also in, in some subcultures in our society uh, is a kind of open relationship or open marriage concept to begin to address that. Monogamy and, and um, polyamory. Um, polyamory is a, is a bad word. I just have to keep pushing against this. You can't really combine a Latin front and a Greek back and uh, make a good word. So polyphilia would be a, a better word. Is also part of your sexual orientation and is pretty fixed. Monogamous people can't learn to be polyphilic. 
polyphilic people can't really learn to be monogamous. And so as you're exploring uh, if sex is to be included in this relationship, that's also one of the things to consider. It is uh, more reasonable, for instance, for a, a polyphilic person to abandon other relationships if they pick a monogamous partner than it is to get a monogamous person to uh, accept uh, an open relationship. Often open relationships are masking an inability or an unwillingness to commit to a primary partner and so you also have to be able to tease that out. But everything is on the table in, in a secure primary functioning relationship. And you have to be willing in these relationships to negotiate these things in such a way that both parties feel they're winning in the settlement that you reach and then these issues need to be settled. That's the way that you create the sense of security in the base. If you withhold information from your partner or you're unwilling to negotiate a settlement with them or a way to be in the relationship, then the relationship never really settles and the security is always in question which interferes with your capacity to use it as a secure base for your exploration. Who do you tell everything to? Who do you feel safe enough to tell everything to? Do you have a sense that there are people that you can tell everything to and that no matter what it is that you tell them, they won't abandon you? That's the level of security that we're looking for in this relationship. How does that sound? <laughs> so then what you'll notice is that your early attachment conditioning affects your capacity to be able to do this. Secure people tend to be able to do it because they've never had to be different than the way that they are. They were always accepted the way that they were. Um, their, their caregivers responded to them, uh, their authentic expression with uh, a, an acceptance and an encouragement. Using um, Dan Brown's modeling for this, the, the main thing that secure relationships provide is a sense of safety so that you feel safe to be authentically yourself and you feel completely safe to reveal yourself to the other person and you feel confident in doing that that they won't abandon you, that you can really count on them. You can attune to them. One of the reasons that we started with, a, with the noting feeling states technique is because uh, attunement, uh, everybody know what an attunement is? You focus on you put your attention on someone and they put your attention on you and, and you know that that's where it is. So we're attuned. We know that we're attuned. Everyone else knows that we're attuned. Now we're attuned, right? We're attuned. We're attuned. At this distance, attunement is easy because it doesn't create a big emotional uh, um, re reaction because at this distance, and I'm about 10 feet away from people in the room, the human eye can't resolve the, 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 
the face in enough detail to recognize emotional micro-expression. So it's a general sense of how the person is rather than something specific. But if you get within three feet of the person, then the eye can resolve emotional micro-expressions and it creates a heightened emotional awareness. But you can't resolve well enough the fluctuations of the iris to have an unfiltered view of what's actually happening with the other person. At about a foot away, 18 inches or a foot away, you can resolve with enough clarity the fluctuations of the irises to understand the internal state of the other person in an unfiltered way. And whether you've consciously explored this or not, you know this because you limit how close people can get to you by stepping back, right? How many people do you let this close to you? Um, how many people do you let within three feet? If they get a little too close to you, notice that you're constantly adjusting the space between you. If you had an attentive enough caregiver, you will have learned to decode the fluctuations of the iris because you would have learned it in, in the face-to-face, -face, a foot away or less. Infants um, have a depth of uh, focus of about six inches, so you have to be right in their face in order for them to really see you. And so when you're held as an infant, and you're reading the face of your caregiver, you're focused on the eyes and that fluctuation of the iris is, the, is pushed into procedural memory. So if you have that um, care, you will know how to do this unconsciously. Um, is that making sense? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned micro-expressions. Yes. Um, I think it's, has a micro-expression training website. Right. Do you think there are any I'm, I'm actually certified as a master. <laughs> so I would say yes, I do think it's worth doing, particularly if you have trouble recognizing emotional expression in other people's faces and body languages. You, we don't come into the world knowing uh, this. We, we learn it from our caregivers. We don't, there isn't a, a universal uh, understanding of what emotions are. There's the family system you grew up in understanding of emotions. And you will have learned that from your caregiver. Um, if they paid attention to you and taught you, then if they didn't do that, you won't have learned it. And so you really won't be able to read people very well. You'll have a, a kind of face blindness or, um, or an emotional blindness. Uh, if you're not empathetic, that is to say you can't attune and allow yourself to feel in your body the empathetic experience of another person, you'll be blind to that as well. Um, I think you should be selective about who you do it with. <laughs> A's, B's, C's and D's, right? Right. Right. Um, so, going back to this model of the the couple bubble or the single psychology system versus the the two person psychology system. Um, 
understand that in primary secure relationships, the agreement is that they take care of you in a way that you want to be taken care of and you take care of them in, in the way that they want to be taken care of, even if it's not equal. Some people require more care than other people and it's very unusual to be in a relationship where it's perfectly balanced. One person is going to be doing more than the other. It won't matter to the other person if when they need it, the care is there for them. If the care that they need is there for them, it won't matter to them that they're having to do more because it will be worth that exchange as long as uh, the, the resources are divided up in such a way that each person feels that their needs are being met. But to, to uh, so what you want to do is um, first figure out whether or not the person can emotionally co-regulate you because that's going to be something that even if they wanted to do, if they just can't naturally do it, they are unlikely to be able to do it. Um, do you know what your deal breakers in a relationship are? I'm giving you now dating advice, right? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean by like the superficial stuff or like well for instance I, I, I have a zero tolerance for violence in a relationship one episode of violence in the relationship would be over and I wouldn't repair it but some people have a modicum of violence you know for instance if you punched a hole in the wall that would be it for me I would, I would never be able to trust you again and, it, and I wouldn't be willing to repair it so if you were somebody who frequently punched holes in a wall, you would want to know that from me early on because it's not going to work. I'm not going to do it. Not that I don't want to do it, but if you punch a hole in the wall and I see you do it, it frightens me to the point that I never really settle again with you, right? So what are your deal breakers uh, in terms of what you have to have and what do you can't have and do you know what they are so that when you're on your first few dates you can interview the person and find out whether the deal breakers are there right it won't matter if they can't co-regulate you oh Right. So, um, the first thing you want to do is find out whether or not you're emotionally regulated by being with the person, you're emotionally dysregulated by being with the person, or you're, nothing happens. Right? So, the first part of exploring an engagement with somebody is to see whether you feel better being with them after 20 or 30 minutes. Do you just feel better being with them? Have you settled? Are you less uh, anxious, less agitated? Is that making sense? Then you want to get to the deal breakers. <laughs> what are your deal breakers? I sometimes talk about my brother. He was engaged um, to someone and he broke it off because she wanted to be a stay-at-home mom and he wanted somebody who matched or exceeded the amount of money that he made. He's been married for decades to somebody who uh, 
and I'd like to say one of the things that energizes that their their marriage is they compete as to how much money they can make. Um, and then I think in a perfect world, the, the winner takes the loser out to dinner <laughs> at the end of the year. Um, but I don't know for a fact. Um, is that making sense? So if you wanted to be a stay-at-home uh, caregiver for kids and you meet somebody and they don't want kids, then that's a deal breaker. It's not going to work. Um, and as much as you try to accommodate each of those, one of you will have to give up such an important part of your exploration, you won't uh, feel uh, a sense of meaning, a sense of satisfaction in your life. Um, is that making sense? Do you know what it is that you, you and there are not going to be that many of them. It's not like some giant list. <laughs> well, So in, in case you can't hear it out in virtual land, the question is what happens if um, the combination of needs that you want from the other person isn't met well? Um, keep looking is one, one way. Um, Right. Right. So you would have to find somebody who wanted to do that, right? It, then you haven't found him, right? Right. There are plenty of people that like to take care of other people financially, but they usually do it because it meets some of their needs, right? Like you can't leave because you have nothing without them or whatever, whatever it is that makes sense to them in their mind. In a secure base, in a secure primary relationship, you have an ally that is your biggest booster in your exploration that has meaning to you, your solo exploration in what has meaning to you. So you have to be willing to be the biggest booster for the other person in their exploration, and they have to be willing to be the biggest booster for you in your exploration. They have to be willing to give you time and space so that you can explore what's ha what has meaning and, um, and you have to do the same for them. These are collaborative relationships, mutual collaborative relationships even though they are not necessarily equal. Is that making sense?
You have to feel a sense of security in that when you come rushing back, no matter what condition you are in, they will greet you and take you in. And they will tend to you without you having to ask them to do it because they feel an obligation to do it for you. And that is matched by your obligation to do it for them, right? You take care of them. You take care of them in a way that's meaningful to them. And you take care of them in a way that's meaningful to the, them without them having to prompt you or ask you to do it all of the time. And they do the same for you. Then you have a sense of safety. You have a sense of a base. You have a sense that you can attune to somebody and that they'll emotionally regulate you so that you can really risk going for the things that have meaning because you know if you get completely knocked sideways and are an emotional wreck, you can rush back and they will take care of you and tend to you. And then once you're settled, they'll push you back out the door to explore more. Is that making sense? Um, I think that this is a, is, is a good model and then what what we begin to explore is how well we would be able to do that for somebody else. And then that would begin to point to our attachment conditioning around that. Um, are there any questions in virtual land about any of this? If you unmute yourself and ask. Okay. No, hi, it's Ringgit. Um, I, I just want to say um, I really appreciate if you repeat what people in the audience are asking because sometimes it's hard to understand it. Okay. Um, and this is really, really great. I'm getting so much out of this. So thank you. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the co-regulation part. When you said, like, you know, do you feel better when you're with them? And I guess it's kind of easy at the start of a relationship because it's, it's they're less threatening, I guess, in right. insecure attachment ways. But as it evolves, and, and the, the attachment style bullshit in the past comes in more, the co-regulation co can, can break down. And I guess, is there any way to, to, to yeah, get a glimpse of that at the start? Evolve. So the question is around co-regulation and, and um, as the relationship involves, uh, evolves and there's challenges in the relationship, does that, how does that affect the co-regulation and can you develop a capacity to co-regulate the other person? The co-regulation of the other person is largely automatic and unconscious, so the capacity to do it is there or not there. That's the easiest way to, to look at it, I think. Do you, after 10 or 20 or 30 minutes of talking to somebody about nothing in particular, feel better? Do you feel the same or do you feel worse? Um, and that's unlikely to, to change that much. What can get in the way of that later on if you're in an emotionally di uh, difficult patch with the person is an unwillingness to attune and be open so that the empathetic experience doesn't happen between you. Um, what also uh, tends to happen is we tend to fall back on our, our attachment uh, strategies and, and um, 
we need to learn from the other person what it is that they find settling so that when you look at them and you see that they're distraught you know that uh, co-regulation is not really on the table because they're not settled and able to do it and that your job then is to help settle them so that you can get that capacity back. So that if you're angry at someone else uh, their job is to see that you're angry at them and then to begin to do the things that they know settle your anger for you so that you can settle your anger and then be available again to co-regulate and the same is true of you. Uh, if you get into a situation where both of you are dysregulated then the, the co-regulating capacity is offline. You're not going to be able to get that to happen and then it would be useful if you could negotiate with them what to do in those situations. So one of the recommendations is look uh, um, I need to table this conversation until I'm back in balance and the other person then is willing to accept that declaration and table the discussion because they know that when you're back in balance you will come back and bring up the topic that was overwhelming to you because you have a collaborative relationship and you're maintaining the safety of the secure base you're not threatening it Right. So you see clearly the other person and what their capacity is in the moment and then you do what you need to do to take care of them. If you see that they're upset you can't expect co-regulation from them. Then you need to move to settle them and you need to table all of the content of the discussions because if somebody's emotionally upset their cognitive mind is offline and you're not going to be able to get them to settle it anyway. You have to see them clearly. You have to move to emotionally soothe them because you can't, I mean what often happens your partner is completely distraught and they're coming to you and they're ranting about some problem and you offer them a solution to it and they go apeshit they're not going apeshit because you've given them a bad solution, they're going apeshit because you haven't seen them. You haven't seen that they're emotionally upset and that what they want is to be emotionally soothed. Is that making sense? You want to see them. People, when people feel seen, they feel uh, loved, they feel cared for, they feel known and when people feel unseen they feel misunderstood and abandoned and hurt by your abandonment. Is that making sense? <laughs>